Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 243 of the podcast for February 29th, 2016. My guest today, Michael Bungay-Stanier, takes us a bit outside of uh, the typical lean realm that we cover here on the podcast, but that's a good thing. Uh, Our topic today, which ties in very nicely to lean and Kaizen, as I think you'll hear in our conversation, is coaching. Michael's most recent book is titled The Coaching Habit, Say Less, Ask More, and Change the Way You Lead Forever. And it's available today through Amazon and other places you can buy books. It's a very practical book that's full of tips and seven key questions that you can use as a coach. Michael is founder and senior partner of Box of Crayons, a company that helps organizations do less good work and more great work. So if you want to find links to Michael and his work and his books, you can go to leanblog.org slash 243. Michael, hi. Thanks for being a guest here on the podcast today. Uh, you know, Mark, I'm really thrilled about it. I think there's such an interesting connection between lean and the philosophy of lean and the importance of coaching to contribute to that. So I love that you've made the connection. And I think we'll find us getting into some interesting, useful conversations about practical tools that people listening in who are champions of lean can actually use to further the cause. Yeah, well, I'm looking forward to uh, exploring that. I think we're going to have a a great conversation here. Um, Can you start off maybe in in your own words, uh, tell the listeners about your background and and your career, some things you've done professionally? Sure. Well, I'll make it short. Um, I'm Australian by birth. You might be able to hear that in my accent, although I've got a bit of a cold today, so you may not be able to hear anything. and I was having a good life in Australia. I did a, a law degree and an, an English degree in Australia. I had the good luck to win a Rhodes Scholarship. And I say good luck because um, it did two things. It stopped me becoming a lawyer. <laughs> and it got me to England, which is where I met my Canadian wife, who I'm still married to 25 years later. Um, and so rather than rushing back to Australia, which had been plan A, in fact, the only plan, um, we lived in England for a bit Um I finally got a job and I started off in the world of innovation and creativity, kind of a little bit before innovation became this hot topic. Mm-hmm. I uh, stumbled on what was then a, a pretty small agency and uh, and spent a number of years pretty much helping to invent products and services for clients. And in doing that, moved into the world of training as well. We, we train people on creativity and innovation skills. Um, after that, I left that company and, and joined a management consultancy focused on organizational change, in part because with the innovation company, it was frustrating how many good ideas kind of went into the company to die. Hmm. I was like, okay, what's going on there? So I moved to organizations and started to understand how change happens in organizations, what works, what doesn't work. Um, And that company took me from London, where we were living and working at the time, to Boston. Now, that was important because my wife happens to be an enormous fan of the Boston Bruins. So she Mm -hmm. was like, I love hockey. I'm all about the hockey. So we had a good time in Boston. Uh, we discovered, amongst other things, the best pizza in the entire world, Pizzeria Regina in Little Italy. I've been there, it, yeah. Here's, here's, the, here's the added value of this podcast immediately giving you some top restaurant tips. So <laughs> really fantastic. 
Um, but then, you know, uh, we got a little restless in Boston, so we went to our local pub and on the, we drank a beer or two. Um, and then we both wrote down the name of three cities we'd like to live in on the back of a beer coaster. On the count of three, we flipped them over and Toronto made both the lists. Mm-hmm. So we booked a ticket to fly to Toronto. We booked that ticket on 9 11. Mm-hmm. So by the time we did get to Toronto, the job I had lined up had kind of fallen away. It was another consulting job. So shortly after that, I started Box of Crayons. And honestly, when I um, started this uh, company, Box of Crayons, my initial business plan was I will do work for anybody who happens to have a wallet and a pulse, you know, mm-hmm. and the pulse was actually, I, I didn't even need them to have a pulse, <laughs> but if they could afford to pay an invoice, then I'd be up for it. But over the years, and Box of Crayons has now been going since 2002, um, we've we've become much more focused. And so what we do now at Box of Crayons is we give busy managers practical tools so they can coach in 10 minutes or less. And that's it. That's become the the whole raison d'etre of what we do and why we do it. Well, great. And and Toronto is a fantastic city and a wonderful wonderful place to be. I'm sure we have a lot of listeners uh, in health systems uh, throughout Ontario and other organizations there. Yeah, you know, Toronto is, I mean, I have to tell you, as an Australian, I do find the winters here a little kind of tedious. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, unfortunately, my wife, who's Canadian, goes, I love winter. I love that freezing experience where you can't feel any of your extremities. I'm like, I do not understand that as a way of thinking about life. But I know that we've certainly done quite a lot of work with um, some of the healthcare providers and the hospitals here in uh, Ontario and in Canada. And, uh, yeah, that's obviously a place where Lean, I know that's part of your focus with Lean as well, working in healthcare systems. Yeah. So maybe your wife uh, has opportunities to coach you on how to uh, right. handle the cold. And uh, <laughs> But so, um, you know, as we're going to talk about coaching here today, and, and the title of the book, again, is The Coaching Habit. Mm. Um, so it's, I guess it's not just about coaching and how to coach, but how to build the habit. You know, I'm, I'm always curious to ask authors, what, tell me the story behind the book of, you know, the different things you're interested in and working on. Why, why write right. this book? Well, it's interesting. I don't know if, uh, if anybody's listening in who has written a book or is thinking of writing a book, I have to tell you that for the most part, it's just a miserable experience. I mean, the first little rush is quite nice. You get this idea. You maybe write out a first draft. First drafts are typically terrible, but somehow you've got something down on paper and you're quite excited about it. But then you need to work a second draft and then a third draft. And honestly, there are, there are times when you write a book, almost everybody, where you're like, I have no idea why I'm doing this. There's got to be a better way. There's got to be something else I could do. You know, even just you know, lying down on the floor of my office and staring at the ceiling would be a better step up from this. But... um there's something about when you're writing a book, and this is actually number five for me, when it becomes an idea that you can't really let go of, mm. that's what kind of pulls you through the the valleys, the dark valleys of writing a book. And I had this idea for this book probably five years ago, um, no, maybe not, th- maybe three years ago, and I started writing it. And honestly, first draft, terrible. Second draft, terrible. Third draft, I started pitching to my publishing house, who published some of my previous books, they like, we hate it. I'm like, oh. And th- this is the hardest book I've had to write. The others came fairly quickly. You know, I, I got an idea. I could kind of see how it would all fit together. And I wrote it, and it was up and down a little bit. But I got to the end fairly quickly. This one, I have literally written three entire versions of this book that ended up, you know, in the delete 
the delete trash can on my computer. But my very first book uh, is a book called Get Unstuck and Get Going. It came out about eight years ago now. And a, a writer and a thinker, one I admire a lot, a guy called Peter Block, mm-hmm. wrote a blurb for it. He said, look, uh, coaching is not a profession. It's a way of being with each other. Mm. And I love that. And it, it has actually become a central part to what we do around here, which is at Box of Crowns, we, we really think that if managers and leaders can coach effectively, make it part of their everyday way of working, it's really a way of helping themselves and those around them do more great work. And by do more great work, I mean do work that has more impact and work that has more meaning. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I was, when I was thinking about this, this uh, conversation we're having and I, I was kind of revising what I knew about lean, um, and I think this is, you know, when, when I think of lean, and I think this is as much connected to the Toyota way, um, this whole idea of eliminating waste and practicing respect mm-hmm. is kind of at the heart of it. Mm-hmm. And I really think that coaching is, is all about that. Coaching is about finding out what the most important things are to focus on, what's the work that actually has impact. But it's also about finding out why the work is that has meaning as well. How do you engage people around that work? Yeah, and coaching, and, and this is one reason I wanted to talk to you and get your perspectives here. Coaching is such an important part of the lean management style. I, I've right. often said that the role of a manager uh, shifts from being uh, a judge of ideas, a judge of performance, to being a coach of somebody who helps somebody perform better, somebody who helps develop uh, ideas and turn them into um, improvements or or innovative um, solutions. And, and coaching has been uh, uh, trendy, sounds like I'm disparaging it, but uh, a trendy term. You know, there are quote unquote lean coaching summits. There are, there's right. a lot of focus on this. And um, I mean, you know, to, how would, how do you dial in on a definition of coaching? Cause I imagine a lot of different people might use the term in different ways. I'm, I'm curious, mm. what, what's your definition of, well, you know, so what, what do, what is this? It's, it's a way of being, but what is right. that way of being? Yeah. You know, I did a lot of research about how people define coaching. And you're right, there's a, there's almost as many definitions of coaching as there are people selling coaching solutions. So, you know, there's a lot of it out there. But I've got two things to offer you. One is a kind of more general definition um, from a guy called Sir John Whitmore, one of the, one of the fathers of coaching, kind of uh, largely responsible for making the grow model as popular as it is. Um, and he talks about coaching is about helping people unlock their own potential, which I really like. Um, but this is the bit I, I like most of all, which is it's helping people learn rather than teaching them. And I think that's an, a really nice distinction. You know, teaching them tends to be, let me download my advice to you. Helping people learn means let me ask the questions that allow you to make the connections and you to actually expand your own uh, self-sufficiency, uh, potential skill set by making your own connections. And when I think of the impact of coaching, it's a pretty simple uh, virtuous circle. I mean, good coaching will, first of all, create new insights, insights about yourself and insights about the situation. You know, you get a different perspective on what's going on. You get a different perspective on what you're doing in the midst of it all. New insight should lead to new action, you know, positive behavior change. You do something differently as a result. And then positive behavior change should lead to new impact, positive impact. 
And then ideally it kind of loops around on itself so positive impact feeds back into the opportunity to get gather new insights about yourself and about the situation. So those are the, the two ways that I think about coaching. One is a kind of philosophy, helping people learn rather than teaching them. And then, then there's the mechanics of how people learn. Insight leads to action, leads to impact, and then the loop continues. And one thing I liked about the book, you know, it's very practical, um, mm. lots of great tips in there. You, you sort of alluded to this. I was wondering if you could elaborate on it because it stood out to me um, early in the book. Uh, a question uh, that, that's helpful in terms of finding out what are the most important things to be working on. I think that ties right. in with lean thinking, not just what oh. we want to work on, but what we need right. to work on. How do, how do you draw that out? Well, you know, I'm, I'm only guessing, but my my guess is that part of the the deepest level of frustration that Lean addresses is that in organizations around the world, people are working really hard and bringing cre- you know creativity and courage and resources to working on the wrong problems, because we tend to get seduced into thinking that the first challenge that shows up is the real challenge, and honestly, it it almost never is, and if there's a if there's a fundamental behavior shift, maybe two fundamental behavior shifts that are in the book. One is a little less advice and a little more curiosity, mm-hmm. and the second is slow down the rush to action. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not it's not it's not meander. It's not never move to action. It's just we're all so wired and triggered to leap into action that we often start chasing the wrong rabbit. Right. So the focus question, which is the third question that, that's in the book, the third of seven essential questions, um, I think is a really powerful one. And the way it's phrased in the book is simply this. What's the real challenge here for you? And the way that's written is important, Mark, because um, if I just asked you what's the challenge here, I'm going to get a certain answer. It's probably going to be the first and most obvious thing to talk about the issue. What's the challenge here? If I just add a single word, what's the real challenge mm-hmm. here? Suddenly, you're making me think a bit more because it's like I can't just give you what the challenge is. I have to figure out what the real challenge is, and that's becoming rich. Um, but really, I think the question becomes most powerful when you add the final two words, which are for you. So what's the real challenge here for you? And actually, that changes almost everything about the conversation because suddenly you're no longer focused on you know, the fire, you're focused on the person who's dealing with the fire. Mm. And when you're focused on the person who's dealing with the fire, that's where there's the opportunity for learning and insight to come. That's where we kind of connect back to those definitions of coaching we were talking about before. So what's the real challenge here for you, I think, is a really powerful, focused question. But let me give you one other question that I think can work in partnership with it that really kind of deepens the impact of this. And this is actually the second question in the book, and what else? And um, it, we call it the best coaching question in the world. And it, it sounds innocuous because it's simply and what else, which doesn't sound that much. But and it's such a great connection to lean, I think, here. You can guess that, and you've heard me say, the first answer is never the only answer, and it's rarely the best answer. So here's a script for, for managers and leaders listening in. You know, you come and you go, okay, so what's the, you know, somebody comes into your office and goes, Mark, blah, 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 blah. You're like, oh, okay. Um, and you can feel yourself twitching to leap into action around it. But you don't. You resist now. And you go, okay, so I hear what's going on. What's the real challenge here for you? And, you know, listen to the answer. But after they finish the answer, 
resist now, and I'm going to do the air quotes, adding value by now telling them what to do. Mm-hmm. Lean in and go, okay, what else? What else is a real challenge here for you? Nod your head, look interested, go, and what else is the real challenge here for you? Mm-hmm. Okay, now they're really working. And I love that. Part of our philosophy is be a lazy coach for your sake and for their sake. And then you lean in one last time and go, okay, so knowing all of that, what's the real challenge here for you? Mm-hmm. And I can promise you in like three or four minutes, you will have slowed down the conversation just a little bit, but you will have deepened it and shifted it. And that for almost everybody, mm-hmm. the, the, the final answer they give will be different from the first answer that they gave you. Yeah, and I think to me there's a number of connections to the lean mindset and what you've talked about there. One is the idea of, I think when you say the first challenge or the real challenge, I think you know we could also frame that. People might be familiar with the thought process of somebody describes a problem, but what they're really describing is a symptom. Exactly. And there's a root cause or the real problem or the real challenge that that sometimes has to be drawn out through asking questions instead of uh, jumping in too quickly and, and giving advice. And if I remember right from the book, this uh, the, the and what else question helps uh, maybe uh, head off or delay that urge that people have to jump in with an answer and to yeah. continue um, yeah. asking questions and making sure someone's had a chance to fully elaborate on their thoughts. Right? Precisely. So you're pointing to exactly the right thing, which is this understanding that and what else not only gets them to keep working and to deepen their answer, but it's a brilliant self-management tool. Because if you're if the behavior you're trying to shift, a little more curiosity, a little less advice, mm-hmm. a little less rush to action, you need to find ways to actually slow down these deep habits that you've built up over the years. And, and what else turns out to be a self-management tool to stop you rushing in. And I, I could see that question also being helpful in situations where people are talking about um, ideas or solutions or countermeasures or whatever right. term people use. Um, somebody, you know, if we, we talk about the problem, we're getting to the root cause or the real challenge. Uh, what do you think we could do about that? They might have an answer, and it seems like your method would prompt someone to say, well, and what else could we do? Brilliant. A longer version of that question, yeah. right? To continue brainstorming as opposed to locking in too quickly on just a solution. Right. Yeah, and that's really important. I mean, I call this first idea-itis, mm. where you, you run with the first idea that's, you know, not too scary, not too impossible, not too weird. And um, in the book, I quote uh, a, a piece of research that shows up in Chip and Dan Heath's book called Decisive. And this is a terrific book. It's about decision-making. And here's the, the research, and it was done kind of uh, laterally, so across different sectors, and this guy did some very thorough research on decision-making in organizations. And he found that 73% of the decisions that he researched were based on a binary choice. In other words, should we do this or should we not do it? It had a failure rate of over 50%. If you're wondering well, is that good or bad? Apparently, that's worse than most teenagers' decision-making outcomes. And we know how bad teenagers are making decisions. Their brains aren't even fully formed yet. By simply adding another option, and, and what else is a question that most easily gets you another option, the failure rate dropped from over 50% down to about 30%. So really significant to understand that if you can just add a few more options into the decision-making process, 
you will get a better outcome. So to your very point, this and what else is a really terrific question to, once you've got clear on what the challenge is, actually go, okay, let's see if we can come up with a number of ideas to see what options we have. And the, the target I give people is not an ambitious one. It's like five. If you can get to five new ideas, actually you're going to feel like you have some interesting choices there. Because this is one of the things that is kind of cool about our un- unconscious brain. Our unconscious brain counts one, two, three, four lots. So if you get to five ideas, it will feel like you have lots of options on the table mm-hmm. and that will actually make you feel more confident and excited about the choices you have. Yeah. Well, and one thing we've talked about before on the podcast with previous guests is the failure of suggestion box systems that are often mm-hmm. framed in just a binary decision of do we approve the suggestion or reject the suggestion. And right. what we see in a, in a real culture of continuous improvement is managers playing the role of coach. If an initial idea is not workable or too expensive or, right. or has some problem, the obligation on the leader is to keep working on it, to, right. to coach and find something that is practical and that's far less demoralizing than just being told no, end of story. No, but, or, well, or I think even, well, and what else? That's a far less um, negative right. um, kind of question. Yeah. And, um, you know, there's a ton of research out there that says often the way to good ideas is through a whole bunch of bad ideas. Mm -hmm. But if you just shut the bad ideas down, you never get those other options opening up. So let me give people a kind of a phrase that is actually another useful phrase for that kind of idea generating piece. Um, And the the insight is this. If you're generating ideas, so you know, let's say I go into Mark's office and I, he's my boss, and Mark goes, okay, we have this conversation. He goes, Michael, what's the real challenge here for you? And I come up with the idea, uh, with, with the challenge. And he's like, great, I think we've nailed that. That's exciting. Um, and he goes, so would it be useful for us to have some ideas about how you can tackle that? And I might say no because I know what I need to do, but I might say, yeah, you know, Mark, that would be really great. And so Mark would lean and go, so Michael, tell me. What ideas do you already have? And I tell him my first idea. And then Mark will go, that's good. I like it. What What else could you do? Fantastic. And he goes, what else could you do? And I go, and now I'm doing all the work, which is really part of the philosophy here, be the lazy coach. But of course, as the coach, Mark's got his own ideas as well. And he's kind of looking to find a way to slip them in, particularly if I don't get there myself. I may get there myself. And the longer you can wait, the better. But at a certain point, Mark's going, wow, I've, I've got to tell him this other good idea because you know, my experience and my wisdom um, tells me that this might be a good option. So here's what happens. Mark goes, good, this is a, this, you've got a ton of great ideas, Michael. What else could you do? And I, I say an idea, and Mark goes, ha, huh, that makes me think of. And that's the phrase, that's the bridging phrase that's really nice, which is, that makes me think of is a really useful way for um, somebody to slip in their own ideas in the conversation, but not in a way that kind of, you know, can suck the oxygen out of the conversation. Because that's what happens when a boss shares their idea. You know, you go and see your boss, and your boss goes, I think you should do this. And everybody goes, I think so too. That's an excellent idea, Mr. Boss or Mrs. Boss. I'll, I'll write that down. And that's kind of done and dusted. So part of your job, particularly if you're senior, is to make sure that your ideas don't just become the obvious idea that everybody has to do just by nature of the power that you hold. Yeah. And yeah, I think there, there's a really careful balance that has to be struck about giving input without 
stomping over uh, somebody else's input. Uh, there's a similar point, and maybe you could talk about this. It's in the book about why it's important. If you're going to give advice, don't give it in the form of a question. Mm. Well, you know, it's it's one of my frustrations teaching this stuff because um, you know people, everybody in theory is pro coaching. You know, nobody's making a stand going. I don't believe in coaching. I just believe in command and control. I just want to tell them what to do. So in theory, everybody's up for this. In practice, people have some old habits that they're trying to shift that make it difficult. You know, we people don't even realize just how much they love to jump in and give advice. But some people have figured out a way to kind of make it sound like they're coaching. And the classic is this. Have you thought of dot, 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 which sounds like a question, but it's not a question. It's just advice with a question mark attached to the end. So my take on it is this. Look, if you're going to give advice, give advice. Don't fake it. You know, if you're going to ask a question, ask a question. And there are seven good ones in the coaching habit. So pick that book up. But um, if you're going to give advice, that's fine. I'm not definitely not saying never give advice again. I'm just saying slow down the rush to give advice to see what they can figure out themselves because that serves them. They become more confident, more autonomous, more self-sufficient. They have a higher status, a higher rank. They become more engaged and more up for their work. And it serves you because you're spending less time doing their work for them because they become more self-sufficient and so on. Yeah, and it's interesting you talk about that positional power. I often have to try to coach and remind executives who some I think lose track of their their positional power and, and how that makes people view them. Uh, I, right. I've seen a question that I think came from a place of honest inquiry, but if it's phrased toward a, you know a frontline hospital employee as "Why didn't you do such and such?" Right. They they that comes across as a criticism. You should have done such totally. and such, even if it wasn't meant that way. I think a lot of times people. You know, uh, re react differently to a question from the same question from their boss or an executive than they would from a peer. Maybe that's right. an important thing to keep in mind as well. How do we yeah. ask these questions? So I'm going to I'm going to build on what you're saying there because I agree with it 100. Um, percent So the tactics to take away from that I've got two to offer you. The first is look to avoid questions starting with the word why. Mm -hmm because it's almost impossible to get the tone right, particularly if there's that kind of positional power difference between the people. So my bias, and you'll see this in all the seven questions in the book, is questions that start with the word what. Um, that's much more powerful. Questions that start with the word how uh, can be useful as well, but how is into the action phase. And what I'm trying to do is slow people up from the action phase. So my stand on it is the more what questions you've got to ask, the better. The other useful tactic here that people can make into a, a habit is a powerful, simple phrase to start almost any question that you ask. And what it does is it lessens the, the scariness of the question. And the phrase is this, out of curiosity. Hmm. So, um, you know, I could ask you, so what's the, what's the challenge here for you, Mark? Or I could go, so just out of curiosity, Mark, what's the challenge here for you? And even though the question is the same, it just comes across as that slightly uh, gentler 
uh, question where there's less at stake to get the answer right. And if there's less at stake, it's easier for people to actually answer it. Mm-hmm. Or even, you know, back to my scenario, uh, it might soften it just a touch if the executive had said, well, yeah, out of curiosity, did you consider yeah. doing such and such? Because that, okay. that helps give per- the, the person a little bit more of an out to say, well, we did consider it, and that's a terrible idea. Or they probably right. would, they probably wouldn't say it that way. But, right, right, right. You know, exactly. Um, uh, maybe more permission to uh, to push back or disagree. I think that's right. Um, we've got just a, a couple of minutes left. There's there's uh, a lot of uh, great content and uh, in, in in the book. Um, something you touched on earlier that I thought maybe you could summarize. You, you brought up this idea of coaching somebody in ten minutes as, mm. as part of a daily habit. I was I was wondering if you could right. sort of introduce that idea for the listeners. Yeah. So um, kind of connects back to that Peter Block quote I was telling you about. It's you know coaching isn't a profession; it's a way of being with each other. And if you're trying to, to drive insight that leads to behavior change, that leads to impact, it doesn't work to do a once a month coaching session with somebody. And the metaphor I want to give people is they want to be thinking about drip irrigation, not the occasional flash flood. Mm-hmm. Okay, but you go, well, okay, I, I buy that in theory, Michael, but do you know how busy I am? You know, I am already working way too many hours. I have a gadget attached to my hip or whatever, so I'm, uh, you know, constantly checking. I feel overwhelmed at the moment. Um, and I'm like, absolutely, I get that. So that's why if you're going to make coaching an everyday way of working with people, you have to be able to do it fast. You have to be able to coach in 10 minutes or less. So the way I, I want to frame this for people is you, you want to stop thinking of coaching as additive to what you're already doing. Because if you, if you think you just got to add it to what your responsibilities already are, you're doomed. It's never going to happen. But if you think of it as transformative, so you're trying to change the nature of the interactions you already have, then it becomes possible. And part of the deep philosophy of the book is you've got to do this fast. So don't make a big deal about it. Don't make it capital C coaching. Just think of it as a, another leadership way of interacting with people. And you lead with curiosity. And the seven questions in the book are just seven essential questions to help you get there more easily, more often. Well, um, I really do want to invite the listeners to uh, to check out Michael's book, uh, The Coaching Habit, Say Less, Ask More, and Change the Way You Lead Forever. Uh, Michael, as, as we wrap up here, what are the best ways for people to uh, find you online, learn more about the book, connect with you in social media? Sure. Thank you for asking. Um, so if you're, if you'd like to get more about the book, the coaching habit.com is the place to go. And, uh, you know, there'll be, there's a ton of free downloads and a ton of resources, all sorts of bits and pieces. So you can squeeze a lot out of that website without ever having needing to buy the book. So that's a starting point. If you're curious about our programs, uh, we're at box of crayons.biz, B-I-Z or B-I-Z, depending <laughs> on where you like to live in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're looking for me on social media, there are two places I hang out most. The first is LinkedIn. So I'm always happy to connect with people on LinkedIn. Um, I am, in fact, the only Michael Bungay senior in the entirety of LinkedIn, probably the entirety of the world. Um, and I'm also on Twitter at Box of Crayons. Okay, well, great. Well, I hope people will uh, connect with you. I hope you check out the book. There's a lot of, I think, you know, very practical, actionable insights in here. I think that's what uh, people are looking for, but um, you know, there's also a lot of other citations and references um, within the book. 
Um, Daniel Pink um, is, is mentioned in the book, who was a previous guest here on the podcast. Lovely. Knows he uh, has a, a very nice endorsement of the book on uh, on the back cover. So He does. I was thrilled to get that. He, uh, <laughs> he actually he wrote the blurb for me, and then he kind of wrote in the email, kind of following, he goes, I think this book's going to do really well for you. So now I'm all kind of tangled up in that, going, oh, I want the book to do really well for me now. But it was really nice to get that endorsement from Dan. Yeah, well, that's, uh, that's, that's amazing. And uh, the book is available, it is available now or real soon. Uh, so it launches February the 29th. So you and I are doing this conversation just a little bit before that. Um, but um, yeah, so February the 29th. If you're listening to this that week, the week of February the 29th, at uh, thecoachinghabit.com, there are uh, a bunch of um, uh, specials that people can get if they buy a copy of the book or more. Okay, well, great. Well, Michael, thank you so much for being a guest. Really uh, interesting discussion, and, and thank you for uh, sharing your book and talking about it here today. Mark, it's a, a real pleasure. Thanks for having me on to the, the Lean Podcast. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.